we began talking about the Four Noble Truths a little while ago. And uh, I'm not sure how far we got last week. Talked about craving, the origin of craving. <clears throat> we talked about craving. Or, yeah, origins of suffering. The origins of suffering. Craving. Okay. okay. Great. I, I kind of thought that's where we would be. So, good. Okay. So, <clears throat> a little review is helpful. Okay. So, the first truth is the truth of suffering, or dukkha, which means unpleasantness. How many kinds of unpleasantness are there? Two. <laughs> Two, yes, they are. Physical and, Physical and mental, right. And so, um, what is the truth of suffering? Pain is inevitable, suffering is an option. Right. Hey, there you go, you got it. So, physical unpleasantness, can't do anything about it. You're, you're stuck in a body that's going to experience that. But you don't need to suffer in, a, in response to pain, nor do you need to have all those other kinds of purely mental suffering that... Uh, we are so afflicted with. Okay. So that's the truth of suffering. And what's the truth of the cause of suffering? Craving and aversion. Craving is the cause of suffering. Craving takes two forms. Desire and aversion. Desire and aversion, yeah. And both of those forms, when you think about it, involve... A non-acceptance, resistance to what is, and attachment to your own ideas of how things should be, or how you want them to be, or <clears throat> and actually, when you when you're attached to things or people, you're attached. Re, you're really attached to the notion that you should have those things or those people, right? And in a world that's in a world like this, that's not going to happen for very long. So, yeah. So, did you talk about the the different uh, the different ways that craving make us suffer? You probably did. Yeah. All right. So, uh, of course, when the Buddha taught the truth of uh, uh, of the cause of suffering, he encouraged his listeners to discover the non-acceptance, the resistance, the the craving that was causing their suffering, and if they could recognize it, to try letting go of it so that they would demonstrate to themselves that this really was the cause of suffering. And this this wasn't this is not this this is a practice to help a person understand the truth of the cause of suffering. It's not the way to end suffering. You cannot end suffering effectively by just letting go of your uh, desires and aversions. For one reason, they, you can let go of them for a short period of time, but as long as they're, as long as the causes are still in place, they will return very quickly. And also, it's a very labor-intensive thing to dive into your own mind and try to figure out when you're suffering what it is that's at the root of it, so that you can let go of it just for a moment. 
Now, that, that, that practice is all about understanding that and demonstrating for yourself, uh, achieving a, a high level of conviction that that craving really is the cause of suffering. The third truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering, the end of suffering. <clears throat> and this basically says that the complete and total permanent end of craving will result in the complete, total, permanent end of suffering. But we've already said a few moments ago, and if you have, if you have done the practices the Buddha suggested when he gave this teaching, you will also already discovered for yourself that uh, bringing about the permanent cessation of craving is no simple task. It's like I have the four noble truths. The two are the first two are things that you can test and understand for yourself pretty straightforwardly, and they prepare you for the next two. But you have to understand that, that bringing about the permanent end of craving and the permanent end of suffering is a bit more complicated. It requires you to understand the origins of craving. And anybody already know what the origins of craving are? We have talked about it a bit. Ignorance. Ignorance is one way of putting it. Delusion might be uh, a little better description because your ignorance, your ignorance is actually the ignorance of the fact that you've been deluded. <laughs> you're in, in, ignorant of your of the state of delusion that you're going in. So yes, ignorance, delusion. This this is what perpetuates craving, keeps craving going. So this is also what keeps suffering going. So, what is it that we're deluded about? The nature of reality. What is reality? Yes, we are deluded about the true nature of reality. Yes. And what form does that delusion take? Separate self, thinking we are a separate self. Thinking that we are a separate self in a world of separate objects. And then... That's sort of the base delusion. The base delusion is where we take the universe, partition one little plant sign, a tiny part of it off, and say, that's me, that's self, that's separate. That's what's most important. That's what has all these needs. It's what I cherish more than anything else. <laughs> and as for all the rest, well... That's where I'm going to get my needs satisfied from, try to get rid of the things that, that I don't like. And so, as soon as you separate yourself from the world, uh, there's no alternative but to struggle. The boundary between self and other which isn't fixed, by the way. Remember, it's, it's an imaginary line. It's an imaginary line created by your mind. But um, 
wherever you place that boundary becomes uh, the battlefield. If you create it, if you place the boundary around your physical body, then it's a constant battle to satisfy your physical needs and avoid pain. Um, if you enlarge that boundary to include your family, then um, you just you you just moved where the battlefield is, but it's still the same battlefield. Now you need to meet our needs and avoid our suffering. So wherever you draw that boundary, a struggle is going to take place. The other really important part of the ignorance <clears throat> is that we believe that our happiness comes from things outside ourselves, and uh, likewise our pain and suffering comes from things outside ourselves. And with the first two truths, we've already realized that, if we've understood those, we realize that at least our, our mental suffering is actually coming from within ourselves. Then if we, if, if you can see that clearly, that when I suffer, the origins of the suffering aren't what happens to me. They aren't what somebody else does. They aren't what nature does. They aren't, they aren't caused by disease. They aren't caused by other people. They aren't caused by tornadoes and hurricanes. That our suffering comes from inside, from the mind's reaction to what happens to us. That we generate our suffering internally. Um, now, you could conceivably say, okay, I understand that, but if I can get enough happiness from out there, if I can get enough satisfaction and pleasure from out there, um, then, then that, that'll be all right. So, yeah. <laughs> but your happiness, likewise, comes from inside. It doesn't come from outside. So the reason you suffer is you believe you're a separate self and you believe that your pain and your suffering come from outside of yourself. And so your life becomes uh, an exhausting struggle. You're always striving. <clears throat> and you're never fully satisfied. Even It doesn't take very long on this planet before you realize that even when you get what you want, it's not going to last. And so even when we get what we want, we're already worried about losing it. Instead of enjoying it, we're already planning ways to hold on to it or to get more of it when it's gone. Right? So even the happiness that we do get becomes a kind of suffering because we know we're going to lose it. <laughs> <clears throat> when you get when you get down to the crux of the whole matter when you stop making yourself suffer then you are happy earlier we were talking about ground states 
and the the ground state, the natural state of the mind, at least in in a certain sense, the natural state of the mind is supremely blissfully happy. A mind that wants nothing, needs nothing, fears nothing, clings to nothing, is a mind that is sublimely happy, blissful. So, we don't really have two problems, getting happiness and getting rid of suffering. We have, it really comes down to only one problem. This is something that a lot of times people haven't understood. The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering, and some people hear that and say, well, what about happiness? I mean, that's kind of a dreary point of view. (laughs) Just focus on the negative. What about happiness? What about joy? What about all those kinds of things? But that's the fact is that that they're really they're really the same thing because when there is complete freedom from suffering, there is also complete happiness, the highest happiness you can conceive of. Yes. I I have a problem with happiness being the natural state of mind only because for me I think happiness is a lot of work. Sometimes I'm more happy or less happy. Yeah. And there's always a fluctuation even of happiness. Well, that's that's a very good observation, a, a very valuable observation. First of all, when I say it's a natural state of mind, I don't mean it's certainly I don't mean it's the state that most human minds are naturally in. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was in a sense. When you remove the when you remove the delusion that drives the craving, and so the craving disappears and the suffering disappears. So when I say natural state of mind, I'm talking about the natural state of a mind un uh, undefiled by ignorance and craving. Okay. But you're absolutely right. It, it, it's work to get happiness. And, well, not only that, sometimes you don't get as much happiness as you feel like the amount of work you put into it. Exactly. You get shortchanged, right? <laughs> because the kind of happiness that we experience most of the time is the very temporary satisfaction of desire. And the bigger your desire, the better it feels when it is satisfied. But that's a, that's a very temporary state of pleasure and satisfaction. Uh, and also, it has to really, in itself, when you examine it, It's, it's, it's not that good a kind of pleasure. There's better kinds of pleasures. Same thing, of course, when you've got a really strong aversion, you know, the more something hurts, when it stops, the better it feels, right? So, bang your head against the wall, it feels so good when you stop. (laughs) So, we make the mistake 
of thinking that the temporary satisfaction of our desires, which is often only partial, should say, not only is it temporary, it's part temporary and partial satisfaction of our desires makes us feel better. Uh, and we mistake that for happiness. And yeah, that takes, that takes a lot of effort and it's ultimately not that satisfying and fulfilling. Um, if we're lucky and things work out consistently, <clears throat> we can settle for that and say that that's good enough. Uh, as long as we don't end up feeling too often like the effort that it took us to get this happiness was, was too much. And, and some people have that experience. Some people are very fortunate, at least for a period of time. But uh, that usually can't last very long. You know, you can be you can be wealthy, you can be beautiful, you can be strong, you can be healthy, but you're going to get old. You're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your strength. You're going to lose your beauty. And you might hold on to your money, but then you start to realize what it's really worth. So the important thing is that you examine the nature of the kind of happiness that we pursue. And you realize that it isn't truly all that satisfactory, and it does take a lot more effort than you really like. So the best thing to do is to put the effort into the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which is the Eightfold Path. It's the path to the end of suffering. So the third truth is the truth of the end of suffering. And the fourth truth is the path to the end of suffering. One of the most important things that you can do when you recognize the third truth is to put all of the same energy that you have been putting into the pursuit of fleeting pleasures and attempts to avoid pain and suffering in all of its forms. Put all of that energy into overcoming delusion, overcoming ignorance. No matter how happy something makes you, it will go away. And if you want to be happy again, you're going to have to put a whole bunch of energy into it. And not only that, you probably notice, most of you, that things tend not to make you as happy the second and third and fourth times as they did the first time. So it's far better to put your energy into overcoming ignorance. Because the thing about overcoming ignorance is you only have to do it once. <laughs> it's a huge payoff, right? You only have to do it once. You know, it's, uh, uh, in uh, Wizard of Oz, when Toto pulled the curtain away from the wizard. That's all it took. Only the once. Once Dorothy knew what was really behind there and the others, there was never any going back. You didn't have to peek again the next day and the next day and the next day. 
So that's a really good reason for <laughs> putting your you know, effort and energy into something that is is going to pay off in a big way and doesn't have to be repeated. You know, some some Theravadan teachers like to translate uh, dukkha, suffering. And they're trying to trying to way to make it more understandable to Westerners. And so they translate it as as stress. <laughs> stress or yeah. And so um, and there's 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 certain merit in thinking of it that way because we experience a lot of stress and we know what it's like when we have release from stress, or relief from stress, when that occurs. And that, that's a lot of, it gives us a sense of uh, where it is we're, we're trying to go. But when you overcome delusion, there is no more craving. There is no more suffering. You are very happy. But the only way you can overcome suffering and become happy is to achieve wisdom, which is the opposite of ignorance. When you overcome delusion, then you see things as they really are. And when you see things as they really are, what you discover leads to a completely different kind of motivation. Some people have asked in these discussions, they said, well, if I didn't have any desire or aversion, I didn't have any craving, why would I ever do anything? But the only way that you can get to the place of no desire and no aversion is through the achievement of wisdom. And when you gain that wisdom, that understanding brings a much more powerful motivator even than craving, which is compassion. One of the forms that suffering takes is that existential suffering. What is the meaning of all this? Right? Life's a bitch. You're born, you suffer, you die. <laughs> Why? Well, to make some kids so they can suffer. <laughs> Do something for humanity so that even more people can suffer. <laughs> no, we want meaning and we want purpose. And it's very hard to ever find meaning and purpose that is sufficient to justify or even rationalize the suffering that's inherent in life. So the wonderful thing about wisdom is it solves that problem. It solves that kind of suffering as well. Because through compassion, life has a tremendous meaning and purpose. And of course, it's the nature of compassion is the desire to help other people 
uh, escape from their suffering. So compassion is itself, uh, it, it, it directs, directly attacks the root problem of the suffering that's in the world that gives us this kind of existential dilemma of what's, what's the point of life. It leaves a person with the ability to absolutely savor and enjoy every single moment of their life. Each moment of conscious experience is a very special, precious thing. And it, when it's experienced in that way, then, in a sense, the ultimate meaning of life is to be able to live fully. The more fully you live in the moment, the more meaning life has. Does that make sense to you? Life becomes your own personal, creative work of art. You live it to the fullest. You do the best that you can. You enjoy it to the fullest. And you're totally unattached. So it doesn't really matter what happens. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow or next week. It doesn't matter how many of your pet projects just fall apart. Your successes and your failures are all one and the same. If you've lived every moment and you've done your best in every moment and you're not attached to the outcomes, the outcomes don't matter. That has a profound effect on your perception of aging and death. Aging and death just become another part of the great adventure. So that's what happens when you overcome ignorance and craving and suffering. So this this third truth of the cessation of suffering has a lot of information content in it, right? And it raises a lot of questions. If I'm not a self, what am I? And if the world is something other than the way it appears to me, what is it? <clears throat> and how do I get from here to there? Even even granting that, you know, that you're willing to accept that uh, the self that you cling to is an illusion and that the way you see the world is just a product of your mind, how do you get from where you are to where you want to be? Because everybody knows you can't just decide to be different. Which is an interesting thing. Some people would like to tell you that, you know, the important thing is, is that Everything in your world is created by your own mind, right? And that's true in a sense. But, so, why can't you just decide that things will be different and they're different? 
Yes. Because you don't have control over your environment. Well, you don't have control over your environment, but that's not the problem. You don't have control over your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't have control over your mind and the way your mind creates your reality. And it really is your reality because you and I can both be in the same place at the same time with the same thing happening to us and we'll be in completely different realities. And you don't have control over your mind at the way it controls your reality. If you did, if you did, then it would be like, you know, well, I don't like the way things are. I'll just make them be different. That'd be nice. Um, your mind creates your reality on the basis of its conditioning. This is, this is another important part of the puzzle. Absolutely everything is the result of causes and conditions. And so we'll just drop any and every notion that there's anything that isn't traceable to causes and conditions. And so your mind creates the reality it does because your mind is as a result of causes and conditions, because your mind is conditioned. If you're a person who is fearful, your mind is conditioned to see things in a way that makes you fearful. If you are a person who feels angry, hostile, your mind has been conditioned to see things in a particular way and react to them in a particular way. If you feel self-condemnatory, uh, lacking in self-esteem, the reason you do is your mind has been conditioned to see things and to see yourself in that particular way. So, so then, if we want to if we want to make changes, then we have to start with the way that we condition our minds. Make sense? So that's the place to start, working with your own mind. Working with your own mind, so I mean, you're, you're trapped in delusion. The only instrument that you have that is going to allow you to penetrate the delusion and see things as they really are is what? It's your mind. Your deluded mind. What's that? <laughs> your deluded mind. Your deluded mind. That's exactly right. <laughs> the only thing that you've got that's going to, you know, if it's possible. And of course, at this point, you got to. There's a lot that now you're going to have to, uh, you could say, take on faith, but at least you, you're going to at least have to have the willingness to find out for yourself because it's not self-evident. But you have to have some degree of confidence that indeed you can use your own deluded mind 
to penetrate delusion. That you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That you can start from where you are and get to where you want to be. Um, another thing that you have to take more or less on faith is that <clears throat> you can't rely on any power outside of yourself to do that. And that can be hard for some people. Some people want to find some other power that can somehow change them and eliminate their delusion and cause them to wake up. But it doesn't work like that. You've got to do it yourself. So you've got to believe that it's possible. You've got to believe that you have to do it yourself. Nobody else can do it for you. And, well, you already have to believe that, and you're convinced that craving causes suffering because you, you've tried it out. <clears throat> and you've discovered that Craving causes suffering, and when you let go of the craving, the suffering stops. But you've got to take it on faith that it's possible to bring a permanent end to craving and suffering. You've got to believe that the cause of craving is delusion, because that's not something that's self-evident. I mean, you might believe me right now when I say that, but do you really know for sure? I mean, because you walk around your neighborhood on Saturday morning, knocking on doors saying, if you've got 20 minutes, I'd like to explain to you how delusion is the cause of craving. <laughs> Could you do that? <clears throat> Probably not. Yeah. But So you'd have to take that uh, on somewhat on faith. And the same thing with the nature of the delusion, that <clears throat> I'm not the separate self that I think I am. That's a big one. And very nearly as big, <clears throat> not quite as big, but very nearly as big, is the world's not the way it appears to be. My idea of the way things work isn't nearly as good as I like to believe. That's also a big... <clears throat> because haven't you most of your life believed that you were a separate self and... You may not have had a perfect understanding of the world, but you had a pretty good idea of what, what was going on out there. Right? <clears throat> so, I think it's, I, I think this kind of brings us to the topic of the fourth noble truth, which is, <clears throat> How do we discern for ourselves that these things are really true? What are the methods by which we can change the way our minds work? How can we penetrate the delusion and actually see things as they really are? How can we bring craving to an end and realize for ourselves an end of suffering? So that's what the, that's what the eightfold path is about, and so maybe we'll talk about that more next time. Right now, just invite any questions anyone has about what we're talking about. Yes. Would you please say again 
part about when you have overcome illusion, ignorance, and you you have moved past. You you get to the you have the old question of well, if I didn't have craving, what would my motivation be? You said, well, compassion provides a much larger motivation. For about a nanosecond, I understood that, and then I lost it again. Could you say that again, please? Well, you just said it. (laughs) You didn't get it when you said it, right? (laughs) There's this little little slip of, oh gosh, I have... I have penetrated past it. I no longer have yeah. craving as I used to have it. Now what? Well, there's, there's the fact that everyone around me is still miserable and maybe I could help them out. Right. Yes, but as you see, there's much more than that because that wouldn't be that wouldn't be as incredibly, wonderfully powerful. The problem with it is that when you've achieved wisdom, you can't say, well, I'm happy and all these other people are suffering. Because the nature of wisdom is that you realize there is not that distinction between self and other. Right? Does that that touch on it? Yeah. Yeah. All right? So... uh, one part of it is similar to, you know, when you've got a thorn in one hand, you use the other hand to pull it out, right? And if you woke up one morning realizing that, that all this time you thought this hand belonged to somebody else and you just get out of here, and now you realize it's part of you, it's, instead you're much more interested in taking care of it. So part of it is that. But the other part of it is the internal perspective of the changes. There's no longer a feeling of being a separate self. There is just a body and mind that are an integral part of a whole. And there's nothing else for that body and mind to do. In other words, you don't have to decide to behave in a compassionate way. You don't have to generate feelings of compassion. What I'm saying is that what you, as the onlooker, would see as compassion, then that you, as the experiencer of awakening, would experience as nothing else to do, the only thing to do. Yes. Um, so our minds are not separate from each other. That is that is a very deep and profound part of the truth. It takes a while to, but you know, as long as I'm telling you things that you can take on faith, yep. Yeah, our minds <laughs> so are that not separate. That, that if you're with other people whose minds are delusional, and your mind's not separate from theirs, your mind is delusional too, and you continue to. Yeah. Is that right? Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the problem. It's, it's very difficult to get out of, outside of the thinking of self and other. Right? And so 
there is what I call the the error of the, the, the cosmic mush error that we're all just this one cosmic mush and therefore um, you know I, if I relinquish my separateness then I just dissolve into this cosmic mush which is full of suffering so it's very difficult to get in your thinking, outside of the separate self, and worrying about, well, what happens to the separate self? Now, while, while your body is alive, <coughs> your mind has a, a degree of separateness that is largely illusory, but nevertheless, the combination of mind and body in the world has this particular perspective. So a Buddha in the world will appear to be a very happy being and his happiness is quite separate from everyone else's. And the reality is that When one person awakens, when one person becomes a Buddha, everybody does, to some degree. But the flip side of that is that until everybody's awakened, no one is completely awakened. Okay? So what you have, you got a Buddha running around, You've got a Buddha, you've got kind of a concentration of awakenedness in one place. Right? And you have to understand the interconnectedness of everything. And the model for the the model for understanding interconnectedness is Indra's jeweled net. It's an infinite net, and every place that two strands cross is a jewel. Jewel has infinite faces and every er, er, infinite facets, and every facet reflects the entire net. Right? Everything in the one, and the one in everything. The more modern uh, analogy that I like is the holographic uh, image. A holographic negative produces a three-dimensional image when there is laser light, when there is uh, uh, coherent light passes through it. The interesting thing about um, the negative of a, of a holographic photograph is you cut it in half and quarters and eighths and sixteenths and so forth, and each part will still produce the entire image. So it makes a very good analogy for the idea that the whole is in every part and the part is in, is in the whole. So if you can somehow step outside of of the thinking of self, then the problem of, well, what good is my enlightenment if it's, if, if, if everyone else is not still enlightened and, and, you know, I mean, that just doesn't have any relevance anymore. It's when one becomes enlightened, then the enlightenment is, is in all. But the, 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 uh, 
the notion that didn't come around for quite a while, so four or five hundred years after the Buddha passed, is uh, the uh, realization that, well, until everyone is awakened, no one is completely awakened. Of course, some people didn't like that, so it made people uncomfortable. It made people who couldn't get outside the conceptualization of a separate self uncomfortable. So then they had to add to the mix the, the uh, image of completely awakened Buddhas who were somehow self-existent and separate from everything else. And I suggest that's not a very productive thing to work with. It's best to dispense with that. On the other hand, the notion that there will never be any complete enlightenment until everyone is enlightened. I endorse that totally. That, that is... That is very true. You know, uh, walk into a cactus and uh, your suffering's not over with until you remove all the thorns from the other hand and the legs and everywhere else that they are. Okay. Yeah. Do I think about like the, we talk about the committees and in my skull? You know, that, that exists, and we, mm-hmm. we get them all in line for meditation, we you know, get them all on board what we're doing. Yes. If I expand that to um, yes. outside, it's kind of like an external version of... Yes, exactly. Very much so. And as a Sangha, that's what we would do with each other, is that we would achieve... You know, we use as a metaphor for the mind all these different entities like a whole group of people that discuss and argue and disagree and you know and then the unified mind, the metaphor is where everybody gets in line, okay, we've all got the same goal, you know, and we we may have different opinions about uh, things, but the goal stays the same and we're all working towards the same goal. We have different different uh, different skills, different strengths, different weaknesses. Well, that's not just a metaphor, it's also a description. Because a a group of people, a sangha, can become unified in exactly the same way and become enormously powerful in the same way. And as such, can greatly accelerate the, the achievement of the goals that the Fourth Noble Truth is all about. So, you know, it's traditional to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And if you think about it, that tradition tells us that the Sangha is right up there on the same level. And we take refuge in the Buddha means that we take refuge in the fact that the Buddha, and and any Buddha, has become awakened and, and they achieved it themselves. We take refuge in the Dharma because the Dharma is the teaching, the training, the vehicle that allows them to to achieve that. We take refuge in the Sangha, right up there on par with the Buddha and the Dharma. We take refuge in the Sangha because the Sangha Sangha is what helps us, which can help us enormously in achieving the goal for ourselves. Um, What really what really made the historical Buddha somewhat 
unique is that he was able to do this without being part of a supportive sangha. But since then, we've all had the advantage of a sangha that has preserved the Dharma, uh, teaches the Dharma, and that we can rely on each other, support each other, and uh, we can achieve these seemingly uh, unattainable goals. We can we can actually climb the mountain and make it to the top because we have the help of each other. And of course, that's that's what a Buddha in the world is. That's a Buddha in the world is somebody who's helping everyone else, supporting them. You all have to make the journey yourselves. You all have to achieve your own awakening. But a Buddha, a teacher, and your fellow practitioners, uh, everyone else can support you to the best of their ability. And that greatly, greatly assists you. You still have to do it yourself, though. But, yes? Um, well, the, the idea of uh, no one being completely enlightened until everyone is enlightened or wicked, that brings to mind the, the idea of the Bodhisattva. Absolutely, yes. That's that's where the notion comes from. So I uh, I want to make a couple of comments on compassion, and I want to hear, uh, you know, hopefully okay. I can share your perspective on what I say. Tell me where I'm wrong or <laughs> what. Um, first of all, the, uh, the notion of false compassion comes to mind. Yes. And by that I mean self-generated compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and term that that we've heard for a few decades now, I suppose, in this culture is fake it until you make it. Fake it until you make it, yes. And and I'm thinking how completely wrong in this context, in the context of compassion, true compassion, that sort of mentality might be. And I've seen myself included, myself being the first one in line, I've seen instances of this that just end up not looking very pretty. <laughs> um, so I'm so I have a concern about, about uh, false compassion. False compassion. Mm-hmm. Well let's just first of all, let's just examine you fake it until you make it is a really good phrase to apply to this. What is wrong with faking it until you make it? So many things. Okay. Uh, I, well, maybe this will shed a little light on because the other comment I wanted to make was that uh, it would seem, anyhow, that true compassion, the experience of true compassion, mm-hmm. would involve the experience of a considerable amount of pain. Not suffering, but pain. Uh, and again, not, not, well, I was going to say not physical, but I sort of think that was my evidence. So, uh, if you're acting as if you were a compassionate being, mm-hmm. and you're anything other than a compassionate being, then one would have to be concerned about the, uh, wow, I guess this even takes some things like karma, things that I <laughs> haven't talked about for a long time. Uh, well, help me out with this. Okay, yeah, let me, and I'll share with you my thoughts on it. 
I, I, there are some things, some bad things that can happen as a part of, of faking compassion. Um, or faking it until you make it. But you have to start where you are. And you are not capable of true compassion until you have achieved, at the very least, the first stage of awakening. And, uh, and, and as you progress from that point, you will develop more true compassion. But you have to start where you are. And there is a tremendous value in acting as though uh, you felt more compassion than you do and attempting to cultivate feelings of compassion deliberately, even though it seems contrived. There's tremendous value in that. Um, in, in many ways, just one way, though, is that we're trapped in our self-centered view. True compassion is the result of completely transcending that self-centered view. Part of what we want to do is overcome that self-centered view that is trapped. And by acting as though we had already overcome it, actually helps us to overcome it. So there are a lot of advantages and benefits that come from intentionally cultivating compassion, even though even though you may, it may not be true compassion, there's great benefits that come from acting as though you feel more compassion than you really do. Where it becomes problematic is where um, sometimes compassion can turn into a kind of ego trip. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. And that's really false compassion. That's not faking it until you make it. That is deluding yourself in even more and thinking that a selfish, a self-aggrandizing attitude is a kind of compassion. And so that's why... Like, what's an example of that? Oh, then that's feeling compassion for these poor people that you're better than. <laughs> I can give you another example. Have you ever heard someone say, you don't have to like a person to love them? Yeah, I think it's just the height of ignorance and delusion. That, that <laughs> mentality. Well, that we yeah. Well, we can talk about that on another occasion. <laughs> but I, I think this just let's stick with the compassion thing. I, I think it's really important to realize it because one of the practices, one of the practices, but it's all part of a whole. The eightfold path. All the parts have to be followed. So. Pretending to be compassionate and trying to force yourself to feel compassion by itself is a very dangerous road and probably is not going to get you far. So where I would agree with you is by itself. But on the other hand, as, as an integral, integral part of the overall path, it's, very, it's a very important part. And it is what we do. Uh, as you see, as you'll see when we start talking about uh, the Eightfold Path, uh, a lot of times 
we we fake it until we make it. For example, we try to keep the precepts. And sometimes we'll find that our inner urge is in direct conflict with the precept. And so, you know, acting on the precept instead of acting on that urge is a kind of faking it. It's, you know, one of the things that happens when you become awakened is you develop an internal compass and you no longer rely on rules to guide you. But following the precepts, following a set of rules, is pretending that you're already in that place where you have, you know. It's when I practice. say, yeah. It's not pretending, it's practice. Yeah, it, yeah that's right. You're, it's practice, exactly. And so we could say, say the same thing about compassion. We can practice compassion before we have perfect compassion. But we have to be mindful. We have to be aware. We have to not let it slip into being selfish or exploitive or self-aggrandizing or all these other pitfalls associated with it. You know, if you convince yourself that you have perfect compassion, then you can convince yourself that you're already awakened and enlightened. That's the end of your path. You're, you're not going to make any further progress from that. <laughs> yeah. And so this is true with all, all, all of these things here. Does this, that help to clarify? Yes. 